on here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. On the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson on 93.5 and 107.5, The Fan. You know, I think that when you have the privilege, as Mike and I do, and my name is Jay Query, Mike Thompson is the other voice that you hear on this program, Beyond the Bricks here on 93.5, 107.5, The Fan. Sam Rumsa is our producer, Eddie Garrison, as well. And I think that when you do what we do and you're fortunate enough to do it, and you're around the Indianapolis Motor Speedway on a regular basis, oftentimes, and Mike, I think you'll agree with me on this, people come up and they want to talk about or they want to ask about or they want to relive Alan Sir Jr. and Emerson Fittipaldi and Ari Leyendike and Parnelli Jones and Sam Hanks. And more often than not, Mike, would you agree, for the obvious reasons, the names that people most know and recognize and talk about are those that achieve the highest level of racing in Indianapolis, right? Oh, absolutely. 100%. Yes, absolutely. 100% agree with you. And that is why, and folks, if you don't know Mike Thompson, and he's just like all of those that I mentioned in the fact that if you see him at the racetrack, he's ready to stop and chat for as long as possible about all of those who have made their name at Indianapolis or had Indianapolis make the name for them. But I think, Mike, that we are as excited, you and I, about this particular episode of Beyond the Bricks as any we've done, because as much as we love Mario, and as much as we love Parnelli, and as much as we loved Big Al, and as much as we love Little Al, we all have those drivers that we loved that were great characters, that were great personalities, that showed great perseverance, and that while we talk about the speed records that took place in the front of fields, often it was the bravery and the perseverance of those that filled out the fields that made Indianapolis what it is. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight, and I know that you're pumped up for it. I'm very excited about this show because I like talking about some of the guys at the back of the field more than I like talking about the guys at the front of the field. Some of the guys at the back of the field, I have, uh, I've got to be friends with a little bit over the years and just, I, I love their stories and I love the perseverance and, and the, just to try some of these guys only made the race once and it meant everything to them just to be in the Indianapolis 500 one time to be one of those 784 men and women who are starting drivers in the Indianapolis 500 as of now. And so I'm really excited about tonight's show. So let's begin with this, Mike. When you were a kid, give me a year. What was the first year that you came to the Indianapolis 500 mile race? The first year I came to Indianapolis was 1982. Was that the first race you attended? It was not the first race I attended. I didn't get to come to an actual race until after that. But the first year I came to Indianapolis was 1982. Now, I'm going to guess in 1982, little Mike, and you were a, weir- a, a, a mere five years old in 1982, right? Uh, no, I was a little older than that. I was, tw- I was 12 in nineteen. You were probably too young to too, truly appreciate that Jose Lee Garza, for example, was driving the Schlitz Gusto, right? That, that's that's accurate i think um a little bit yeah i i knew a little bit about the schlitz gusto but not not uh, exactly what the product involved that's exactly right i personally in 1982 
I don't know that I was totally tuned in yet to Domino's Pizza, not because I didn't like pizza, but because I don't know that it was as mainstream as it was by the time it was the Domino's Hot One in 1990 with Ari Leindyke, which was car number 30, because 30 minutes or less, of course, on your delivery. But Howdy Homes was sponsored by Domino's in 1982, and it wasn't for me until Howdy Homes, as we've talked about in previous installments of this program, for me, Howdy Homes, when I think about them, I still think of the... Jiffy Mixes, which he brought in 1984. That's his family business that he's still involved in. But when I think of the Jiffy car, I think of Howdy Holmes. But this is what we're talking about, Mike. These drivers that, you know, didn't necessarily have the household name recognition, but we loved them when we watched them. Who was yours in 1982? What are a couple that jump out at you? Oh, man, in 1982, probably uh, Jeff Brabham in the Pentax cameras car. Uh, that would be one that immediately jumps out at me. Um, I think of Hector Rabake, uh, because he was in a kind of a blank car at the at when I first saw him. Um, you know, but I also obviously I, I had some other other favorites at the time. But uh, Chet Phillip, who now lives in Avon, Indiana, um, Chet Phillip was a guy I liked a lot. Um, he had a beard, which was kind of unusual at the time. So, <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, Pete Halsmer and the Colonial Bread Ride. Pete Halsmer, so, uh, yeah, started in 32nd position, right? Yeah, so yeah, so there, there was a number of those guys. Dennis Firestone is one, by the way, that I always I always felt bad for Dennis Firestone because it always seemed like when they started the engines, he stalled. I, that probably only happened once. You know, the Dennis Firestone hasn't fired up, and then, boom, they got it going. But I always felt bad for Dennis Firestone. But, again, huge pedigree, <laughs> but just, you know, never necessarily broke through at Indy. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, Dennis Firestone was a heck, heck of a good driver. But uh, but it's one of, it's interesting how those things, you remember them. You know, you, you know, one time that happened, so it happened probably ten times in your mind, right? So one of the names that was a key part of the 70s, but also became a key part of the 80s and 90s because he fell in love with the Speedway and ended up around it all the time and was one that was always willing to put on his old-timer's hat and sign an autograph and talk about his time at Indianapolis. As a man that was born in Charlotte, North Carolina back in 1930, as a matter of fact, lived a good, healthy, full life, passing away at the age of uh, 85 in 2016 in Indianapolis, And we're talking about Bob Harkey, who came in 1964 in car number four and started the Indianapolis in the 27th position, but had a solid run. As a matter of fact, one could argue that his best run at Indianapolis was his first run at Indianapolis. Bob Harkey finishing in eighth position in his rookie campaign. And before we get to know more about Bob, let's hear him talk about that top 10 finish in his initial Indy 500. Paul Russo was scheduled to drive the car, and he had been waved off twice uh, for not going fast enough. And, and Barney Christensen was the crew chief. We had an almost new set of tires on it on the car. And so Barney talked to Wally. Wally's ready to load the car and go back to St. Louis. And Barney talked to him says, let's put the kid in it and wear out the tires. Let him wear out the tires. So Wally agreed and put me in it, and I qualified it. Now, Mike, we're talking about a guy that you knew and I think got to know pretty well. But one of the beautiful parts of this sport and this event, Bob Harkey personifies just one of the real fun characters in the annals of the Indianapolis 500. Absolutely. I loved Bob Harkey. He was just a great guy. I got to know him through some unusual circumstances, which was uh, I had 
a chance to interview him for a project for WIBC. And while he came down, he brought me uh, a, this record that he said he had. And he said, hey, I've got this NASCAR record. I want to convert to a, a CD so I can listen to it. And, and I, I didn't understand what exactly he wanted to listen to because it was I thought it was going to be like a NASCAR or an old race. And it wasn't. It was, believe it or not, that they had in the 70s, the NASCAR drivers of the time, the biggest stars, Richard Petty and Cale Yarbrough and Daryl Waltrip and Buddy Baker, they actually cut an album, if you can't, if you believe that. They cut an album where they sang songs like 99 Bottles of Beer on the Wall. And, and then they each had a, a song about themselves where they sang. And they put it out as a country album. It was like NASCAR Goes Country. And <laughs> Bob Harkey wanted me to help him put this on a CD. And so we worked together on this to get it onto a CD. And he said, hey, for you helping me out, um, I want to take you to lunch. And so he took me to Cracker Barrel on 38th Street for lunch. And he couldn't have been any nicer during the lunch. And I'll never forget this forever because I'm sitting there with Bob Harkey, who drove in the Indianapolis 500 and just having a great time. And Bob Harkey ordered almost everything, I think, on the menu. And so he kept, while I was eating my food, he kept saying, hey, well, this is really good. Why don't you try a little bit of this? And he, he kept putting things on my, my, my plate for me to try. And it was like this kind of like, almost like this buffet we had created between the two of us just sitting there having lunch. But that was the kind of person Bob Harkey was. He wanted you to have a good time. He wanted to have, you know, he was having some fun. And he was just just a joy, just an absolute joy to be around. Well, it's fitting that he would have had a record that had to do with NASCAR because Bob Harkey, of course, was native of Charlotte, as I mentioned, and then came over to IndyCar. And that created back in the early to mid-60s a bit of a curve, if you will. Here's Bob. Well, when I was like in the first and second grade, I lived in Wilmington, North Carolina. And AAA came down to Wilmington, Shelby, Charlotte, and, and Asheville, to run sprint cars in the fall. And Dad would take me to the sprint races. Now I was only six or seven years old. But at that time, in the middle 30s, uh, all of our airplanes were open cockpit, headrest on the back and windshield. And they didn't, until 1937, they didn't start making monoplanes like the P-40 and that stuff. So uh, I always liked that open cockpit. And I liked the airplanes flying. and liked the race cars. So I wanted to be open wheel. And it was awful hard to even get to Indianapolis on, on radio back in Charlotte, North Carolina. They had a ball game somewhere, but uh, and you, you'd lose the station, you know, 10 times through the race. But I always wanted to go open cockpit. So there was a midget group out of Atlanta, and I would go down to Atlanta to run midgets. And then I went up to Washington, D.C. to run them, and then I got sprint cars. And, and uh, the guy I was driving for, Ed Stone in New England Speed Equipment, had two offy midgets. I drove one. Gig Stevens drove the other, and Gig... And Ed bought an Indy car, and I begged and pleaded with a gig to give me a driver's test. I promised I won't take your ride. I just want a driver's test, and and he did. So I passed my driver's test in '63, and uh, that's how I got into Indy. And you know the interesting thing about Bob Harkey, Mike, is the fact that as he talked about there, you know he was willing to drive anything. And, you know, urban legend has it that he ran kind of a stooge car, a decoy car, if you will, for moonshine runs back when he was a younger guy, that he was a stunt driver at different periods. But the bottom line was, if it had a steering wheel and it had wheels, Bob Harkey was going to get in it. Oh, absolutely. There's no question about it. He even he actually even drove in one uh, NASCAR race in the, the old convertible series. He drove in one NASCAR race in the late 50s. So, yeah, uh, when he took his test, his driver's test, 
he took it in the famous American rubber and plastic special. So I don't know if you recall somebody else who was in that same car that same year, Jake Query. Do you know who else was in the American rubber and plastic special in uh, 1963? The 1963 rubber and plastic special. Yeah, the, the American rubber and plastic special. Do you know who else was now in that a, car? Uh, would have a, naturally had like a little bit of extra bounce in it. Is that right? That's right. Well, it did after, unfortunately, after Bob wrecked it in practice. Uh, I'm looking right here. Now, am I allowed to guess on this? You can have a guess, yeah. I actually don't know. I would be strictly guessing, truth be told. Original driver, also another driver in that car, was a very young Bobby Unser. Literally. Sweetie, let me tell you. Yeah, Bobby Unser was in that car as well before Bobby Unser switched teams. So, Bob Harkey, again, talked right there about the fact that engines in general fascinated by him. He was fascinated by them. Rear engines, roadsters, all of them. Bob Harkey expands. That was a big getting used to because in a roadster, you sit between the rear wheels and you feel everything the car does. Uh, if it gets out a little bit on you can catch it. You can kind of go a little bit sideways with it and, and control it. But in the rear engine car, most of the time, it jumps out on you. It gets out past you catch it. You're on the pivot point. And then you lay in the first ones, the lotuses, we were kind of laying on our back and uh, looking, driving between our, our feet. And uh, going down in the turn, uh, the track looked all different to you that way. And plus the suspension on the rear engine cars was so, about like a ballpoint pen. Your, your tire rods were in, steering arms were real fragile. And you looked at that and you were used to something really heavy in the roasters and the dirt cars. And you thought, man, alive, that, is that thing going to hold me? And that took a little getting used to the suspension on them. But they had that uh, independent suspension, so they kind of leaned and, and got a hold of the racetrack no matter how hard you leaned on it. But then, of course, when we got to running 190, 200, 220, the wings and the, and the tunnels did all the work for you. Mike, here's the thing. You said it was Cracker Barrel where you went with Bob Harkey? That is correct. So I would imagine that you could have sat there and had dinner four times to listen to him talk, right? Oh, I would have sat there for a week and, and talked to him because, I mean, Bob Harkey, I mean, he was such an interesting guy. I mean, he was he was a pilot. He was actually the one who taught Johnny Rutherford how to fly. He survived a plane crash. I think he crashed his plane twice, actually, um, and survived. Uh, so, no, I would have sat there for several days and listened to Bob Harkey talk. And, of course, when you hear him talk, you could have listened to him talk about his top ten finish in 1964. Then you could have heard him talking about how he came back to India in 1971, ran again in 73, 74, 75, and 76. But the question would be there, wait a minute, Bob, there seems to be a big gap there between 64 and 71. What happened? Well, I made the wrong choice. Of, uh, it was kind of a honest, innocent mistake. Uh, for federal engineering in 65, it was the first year, really, that the Americans came up with rear engine cars. Now, Jimmy Clark came over with a Lotus and stuff like that, but then we had uh, Watson build a, a rear engine car, and, oh, I guess several others tried to build them. Well, Ronnie Ward's half-brother copied Watson's car and uh, made it, and that was a copy of Allstead's car, and made one for Dan Levine, Federal Engineering. Well, that was the worst handling car I ever drove in my life. It wasn't safe sitting in it in the pits. And uh, it had to, I didn't realize what was going wrong, but the frame was twisting. It would go in a turn, it would unload. About three times through the corner, it would unload, and you'd have to gather it up and catch it. So I missed the show, and that, that would hurt me that year. <laughs> I guess if it, if it wasn't a good car, Mike, anybody would have hesitation getting in it, right? 
That's right. That's I right. Mean, like I say, that that's Bob Harkey right there. I'm just that's the definitive Bob Harkey answer. Now, Bob Harkey, as we mentioned, ran it in '71. He started, as a matter of fact, dead last. Brought the car home 14th. This is a credit to Bob Harkey, as a matter of fact. He never ran a race, Mike. I'm going to turn the trivia to you. Are you ready? Okay. Bob Harkey, in every single race that he ran at Indianapolis, managed to do what at the end of the race? Managed to uh, finish higher than he's... He finished higher than he started in every race. That is correct. He finished higher than his starting spot in every single race because in 71, he started dead last. He finished 14th. In 73, he started again in the 11th row, 31st, brought it home 29th. 74, again, 11th row, started 31st, finished in 8th. Started 23rd in 75, got a top 10 again, finished in 10th, and then in 1976 started 28th, and he finished in the 20 position, 20th position. But, Mike, that's not to say that he ran every lap of every year that he was in the race because there was one of them where somebody else got in to relieve him, correct? Well, it's because 1975 was a bit of a strange situation for Bob, and, and Bob had a, a, a lot to say about what happened to him in 1975 with when he was driving for uh, George Walther, who's, of course, his son was Salt Walther. And he, the uh, of course, the when your son drives for the team and he's the lead driver, if something happens to his car, he's going to end up getting into your car. Unfortunately, it, it happened very, very early in the race for Bob, and Bob was not too happy about that. Well, they did the same thing at Pocono. Now, I was mad at Salt, and he told me to uh, ask, call me after the 500 and says, you want to drive my car at Pocono? And I told him where to put it. Well, then he told me, he says, all right, you can have all the money. There's no money there, which it wasn't. So I says, okay, I'll drive it. <clears throat> we'll go to Pocono. And uh, I think I barely got it in fourth gear, and he pulled me in and says, you're running fast enough, qualify it. So I qualified it, and we start the race, and I'm still mad about May. And I'm going to set him up in front of the – straightaway in front of the pits and pass him right by in front of his dad. Well, as I'm going down the straightaway, I'm looking at over two, and there's a car coming off two, a dark car, and I thought it was salt. Well, I catch a car and pass it, and it's not salt. So when it comes time for my pit stop, I come in the pits, and he's standing there with his helmet in his hand. Takes it again. And then there was a phone booth back there where the tunnel was in Pocono. If I had known that, I'd have parked it back there and called him on the phone booth and told him where his car was. <laughs> I guess he wasn't too eager to just go ahead and hand over the keys, huh? No, that, that was uh, – and that I'll just tell you right now, that's the PG version of that story. Um, when he told me at Cracker Barrel a little bit of a, a, a little bit of an R, more R-rated version that we can't unfortunately play. You can on, paraphrase. On yeah, so – but, yeah, he, he was relieved early. Now, they, uh, they did the driver change at Indianapolis under green. Had they waited for a caution that actually came a few laps later, uh, they probably would have got a fourth or fifth place finish maybe out of that. But uh, since they did it under green, they lost a lot more time. And and Bob was very unhappy about that because they would have finished a lot higher up in the order if they would have just waited a couple more laps. But when Salt wanted him out of the car, that's what they did. And Salt ended up actually, I guess, finishing the race in that car, right? Finishing the hundred, ran 162 laps in that race. You might have heard me mention there were three years in a row there where Bob Harkey started the race in the 11th row. And, of course, it wasn't for Bob Harkey about where he started but where he finished. But a lot of those times when he started on the 11th row, it's because he was getting in at the 11th hour just to put the car in the show. 
That's called desperation. <laughs> when you get when you want to ride so bad, and you'll take whatever's available, and uh, uh, a lot of breath holding in that, and you'd go down the corner and, and hold your breath and, and drive it in there and hope you could catch it if you lost it. And uh, that was basically how I got some of those cars in a race that really weren't capable. You know, we talked about the colorful character of Bob Harkin. You can hear it in his voice, obviously. This is a guy that not only would drive anything, as we talked about, but I guess he never bowed down to a challenge, never backed away from a challenge. You know, this is the time of year, actually, when the Golden Gloves, which is one of my favorite events over over at the Tyndall Armory here in Indianapolis, takes place. And turns out Bob Harkey himself wasn't afraid to put his racing gloves aside, put on his boxing gloves, and fight heavyweight champions. Here he is. Well, when I was fighting the Golden Gloves Police Athletic Club, uh, we were fighting in Philadelphia, and it didn't have – uh, they ran out of fighters. They didn't have a, a, a fight for me. And my coach, who was familiar with Floyd Patterson, he got Ring Magazine and all this stuff. He says, uh, this guy's pretty good. You want to fight him? He's a tall, skinny kid. I said, yeah, I'll fight him. <laughs> and so uh, they matched us up, you know, golden gloves. That's, that's two-minute rounds. So uh, he won all three rounds. But I, I got some good licks in on him, but I never knocked him down. He didn't knock me down. But he was faster than lightning. And uh, so he won the fight. And, when I came home, Dad says, well, how'd you do? And I told him, I only got hit three ways, Dad, fast, often, and hard. So that was about the end of my boxing career. I'd had 63 amateur fights. Did you ever consider doing that? I mean, you, like you said, you had all these amateur fights. Did you ever consider doing that as a career? Or? In the early days, but then I got involved in racing and girls, so that went by the wayside. <laughs> well, hey, can't blame him there. I guess Floyd Patterson was fast, so too was Bob Harkey, just in two different sports, right? That's right. And when we were talking at the Cracker Barrel, he, he brought up Floyd Patterson. He, he just brought it up as an aside. He just kind of was talking about, yeah, when I was fighting Floyd Patterson, I said, wait, I said, wait a minute, Bob, you were you did what? And he said, yeah, he said, I fought Floyd Patterson before he was the heavyweight champion of the world. And I said, oh, wait, you got to tell me this story. So we, uh, we I got him on tape finally telling me about that story. But uh, Bob Harkey is one of those guys that was, you know, when you think about the people who have made the Indianapolis 500 great, we think about all the winners and we think about all the, you know, the great drivers who have, uh, you know, you know, you, you think about the people who are on the Borg Warner Trophy and we think about people like Sid and people, you know, but I, I want everybody to think about people like Bob Harkey, who, you know, the late Robin Miller loved Bob Harkey. And one of the reasons he loved Bob Harkey was because he was willing to get in an unfamiliar car on bump day and he would be able to stick it in the show at the last minute. And it's and it's those guys like Bob Harkey and other drivers we're going to talk about tonight that, you know, I love the, the those people and those stories as much as I love all the winners. So there are other characters to talk about, as Mike had mentioned, and that's actually exactly what we're going to do. By the way, Godspeed to Bob Harkey and the late Robin Miller. I love the fact that right now they're sitting around at a Cracker Barrel in the sky and telling stories about Floyd Patterson and anything else that Robin wants to hear about. Kind of warms your heart when you think about that. We'll talk about other names that are similar when we return to Beyond the Bricks. I'll be driving for Colonial Bread in the Indy 500 time trials. And thanks to Colonial's Indy 500 sweepstakes, you could be driving a new gold Camaro, or win free groceries, or even become an honorary member of my pit crew. For sweepstakes rules and other prizes, just look for specially marked loaves of Colonial Bread. And at the race, look for me in the Colonial Hugo Chevrolet Special. Hey, who knows, with a little luck, we might both win at Indy. No purchase necessary. Well, it didn't necessarily work out 
completely like that for Pete, but not bad. Finished 25th that year in the race. That's from 1982, the first year that a young Mike Thompson made the pilgrimage over from Ohio to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Welcome back. Thanks for listening. My name is Jay Quarry. Mike Thompson along with me. It is Beyond the Bricks here. The stories of the personalities like Bob Harkey that make Indianapolis what it is. And that includes a guy, Mike, around the time that you came in 1982, a year after I made my first visit to IMS. In 1981, I was there for the first time. I did not, like you, go to the 82 race, but I did in 1983. And at that time, so much of the talk about Indy and qualifying and the race and all of that took place in the most important social place that a young boy or girl could have, and that is the back of the school bus, riding to school every morning. Turns out school buses were actually kind of a part of Indy lore back in the early 80s. That's right. Um, the guy we're going to talk about next definitely brought the school buses to the forefront of the discussion at the beginning of the 1980s. So let's go back to 1980 and illuminate via sound what we're talking about. The fourth row, car number 66, Roger Rager, a rookie from Mound, Minnesota. The Advanced Clean Sweep Carpenter School Bus Special. It is a Wildcat. It is powered by a Chevy stock block. And one would think it was powered by a school bus, right? That's the way things were back then. But that was a late addition in terms of the sponsorship when you heard Paul Page mentioning it, right, Mike? Yeah, the school bus company came on late, but it it's because uh, during the month of May, it actually came out that Roger Rager and his team got their, shock, their stock block Chevrolet engine. They got the head for it actually out of a crashed school bus, which he told Kevin Calabro on WIBC in 1980 on a show called the sports huddle so instead you have a, a block from a school bus right i have a block that we got out of the crash school bus up in a junkyard in minnesota and we pulled the head off of it right there and mike the bore and to see you know if it would clean up and how much taper it had and uh, the reason we use an older block like that it's a heavy duty block and uh, it's already been seasoned so to speak so when we do our line boring and that type of thing uh, it doesn't warp and change once it gets hot because it's our already been hot and cold and you can take a new block and do the same thing uh, but the first time you run it and the thing gets hot the block does a little distortion and and your line bore is off and the bore is off and everything else we could have gone with a high nickel block uh, like they use in nascar which we could do the same stuff there and everything would stay but then you're talking more weight again uh, the high nickel block is a little heavier than the just the regular heavy duty uh, four bolt main truck block or bus bus motor Seventy thousand miles on that thing uh, that's what the speedometer showed on it yeah it was seventy thousand. uh you know we kind of laughed about it at the time and uh you know we hadn't really planned on telling anybody but somebody said well where'd you get the motor and uh, well my crew says well it came out of a bus and which it did and uh you know that's about all we could say about it so in the end it would have had seventy thousand and a couple hundred miles on it because roger went 55 laps in the 1980 indy 500 before an accident Put him out of the race, finishing in 23rd. Roger Rager was born September 3rd of 1948. All great people associated with the Speedway, like myself, Paul Dalby of Champaign, Illinois, were born on September 3rd. Not necessarily in 1948, but he was born in Lincoln, Nebraska, and at a young age, like so many who catch the racing bug, it was a go-kart that wet his whistle when it came to talking and thinking about racing. And then... 
like so many people, Mike, that we talk about, Bob Harkey would be a prime example, it just came down to the point of always having that thirst for speed, and eventually he purchased a stock car for just $35 to race at a local track, and the rest is history, as they say, because he was off and running. Yeah, and and he was ended up being a heck of a sprint car driver. I mean, a really, really good sprint car driver. I mean, is evidenced by the fact that he's in the National Sprint Car Hall of Fame, and he, he won a lot of races at uh, the famous Knoxville track. Uh, this guy was a great, great sprint car driver. Uh, but, yeah, you're right. I mean, he would drive anything, anywhere, as a lot of the drivers at that time would. And, of course, with that, that means that he crossed paths with – you know, I think about, for example – Kevin Olson, and boy, it it feels terrible for me to say this, and I realize it's a natural part of just life in general, but Kevin Olson, who also a USAC legend, Hall of Famer, uh, that tragically passed away in the offseason this year. But KO is one of those that, you know, I remember Kevin Olson telling Davey Hamilton one time when we were on the road for IndyCar Radio, and KO, a Hall of Famer, a guy that never quit racing and he said to Davey one time you know Davey I almost had tears when you went out there to race after your accident in Texas and fought your way back and made the start in the Indy 500 Kevin Olson told him he said because only then did I truly realize once I thought there was the possibility that you weren't going to be able to get back in the 500 at that point, Kevin Olson had the epiphany that Davey Hamilton was carrying that torch for so many guys that had run on dirt tracks and short tracks across the Midwest and the West of this country. And KO, a guy from Illinois and Wisconsin area that had raced anything that he could put his hands on, understood and appreciated that. And I could see in Davey Hamilton that Davey knew and understood what it meant to represent all of those drivers. And when it comes to Everything from just getting in a stock car, finding anything you could have put an engine together, and the guys that do that kind of thing. He might have only won, or excuse me, run, I should say, won Indianapolis 500, Roger Rager, in 1980. But there's no doubt that he was aware of the fact, as he talked about, that he was representing a number of drivers that he crossed paths with over the years. That's something that Tom Sneva said on the program we had him on last week, and he said that it really doesn't matter what kind of driver you are anymore. It's just if you have the bucks, you can almost, you know, name your ride, it seems like. And that's what I've tried to overcome uh, with the stock block program. I'm trying to show uh, people that we can do it on a lower budget, and the stock block is a cheaper way to go. And I'm trying to trying to do something for all of us, not just myself. Uh, I'm trying to do something for every guy in USAC, every guy in the World Outlaws, in the sprint car division uh, we've all worked a long time to get here and uh, at the time i started coming up uh, they hired you on your ability not your billfold and uh, by the time i got here that had all changed and uh, so i bought my own race car and did my own thing and i hope that i can change some of this around and give the racing back to the racers so he made the show in 1980 and as we talked about the race might have ended up falling short of what his expectations were because he didn't finish but look as you heard about right there for a guy on a shoestring budget that was coming up through the ranks just making the show always has been a big deal and it certainly was back then but there still had to be a strategy going into it and Roger Rager talked about exactly what his game plan was getting set for 500 miles 
Well, our basic race day strategy at this point is just to keep our nose clean and, uh, you know, kind of kind of see how the race develops in the first few laps and let them get strung out a little bit. Uh, we're starting up there with some really good company, and uh, we don't want to cause any problems for anybody, uh, ourselves or anybody else. And uh, we think, uh, you know, at the end of 500 miles, uh, barring uh, the car still running, of course, uh, uh, no problems. Uh, we'll be right there in the top five somewhere. You know, Mike, I think it just goes to show, and I've always said this about the Indy 500. For a lot of people, the 500, it was not unlike the NCAA tournament. And follow me here, because by that, what I mean is I remember in my childhood, I grew up an Indiana fan, Indiana basketball. And when I was a little kid, and Indiana was eliminated from the tournament by Kentucky or you know whoever it might be that knocked them out in the early years when I'd watch or even if they'd made the they had to settle for the NIT in 79 things like that my dad would say well now Jake we got to root for and in the matchups he'd say we're, we're rooting for Michigan State or we're rooting for Iowa we're rooting for Illinois and I'd say why and he'd say because they're in the Big Ten and Indiana's in the Big Ten so if Indiana can't be there you root for the Big Ten schools I think Mike for so many people Roger Rager Bob Harkey, um, the names that we're talking about above and beyond the Unsers, you know, Tom Sneva, those names are drivers that people rooted for because they came up through the ranks in the regions or on the racetracks where people went and watched racing on dirt or on pavement on a Saturday night. And therefore, even if that wasn't necessarily their guy at that track, it was representing that track as it went to Indianapolis. And therefore, that's who they rooted for. And that's why those grassroots guys are such a huge part of the heritage of that place. Oh, there's no question about it. No question about it. That's, I mean, the guys like Billy Engelhardt and, and uh, you know, Greg Leffler and all those guys who were in that race with him. There's no doubt about it. Um, you know, you could just see, like, just by the reaction the late Brian Clawson got, you know, later on, uh, you know, because of his grassroots connection and, and the fans that Brian had. But, I mean, Roger Rager had a lot to be proud of in 1980 because, I mean, he qualified – in the same row on his in, he's qualified in the middle of the row and on the inside was Al Unser on the outside is Jim McElreath the guy who won the first Ontario 500 so you know here here's Roger Rager sitting there you know he's starting 10th for for the race in a stock block and you know that's a pretty impressive feat and and he was right because his race day strategy was right on in fact they led a couple laps early in the race um, now it was through pit stop shuffles and things like that, but Roger Rager, you know, he's one of the guys that can say, I mean, he was at the, you know, I mean, obviously he just passed away a couple months ago, sadly, but he was one of the people who could say, and there's only 235 of them who could say, I led the Indianapolis 500. And, uh, you know, he was probably on his way to a top five, top six, top 10 day. Uh, if everything hadn't happened, he, he got caught up in an accident with coincidentally with Jim McElreath, who he started next to, but, uh, I think had everything fallen the way he thought it would, he, he probably would have had a top five day. Led a pair of laps in the 1980 Indianapolis 500. Roger Rager passed away February 16th of this year. Godspeed to him. And it's been a pleasure to be able to either introduce people to Roger Rager or to remember his contribution to the Indy 500. We come back, we'll put a bow tie on it by talking about another guy who had a famous last name, but not as famous a story. We'll explain next. 
Car number 36, another rookie, Jerry Sneva from Spokane, Washington, the brother to the pole sitter. Jerry Sneva is driving the 21st Amendment Special. That was 1977. That's Paul Page talking about Jerry Sneva making the first of his five starts. As a matter of fact, Jerry Sneva that year finished in the 10th position. And then Jerry Sneva in 78 came back, started in the 11th row. But he was one of those guys, as you heard Paul Page mention, the brother to the pole sitter. But yet, Jerry Sneva was the proverbial, as we call it, Mike Thompson, kind of a helmet carrier. And the fact that just because his last name was Sneva doesn't mean that he was automatic to get himself a ride in the Indianapolis 500. We will talk about that here upcoming to put a bow tie on this particular episode of Beyond the Bricks. Thanks so much for listening. My name is Jake Query. Mike Thompson is the other voice you hear on this program. Mike, of course, a longtime historian of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, confidant working alongside the historian emeritus at IMS, Donald Davidson, for many years. I am the morning host on Kevin and Query, co-host, I should say, along with Kevin Bowen, from 7 to 10, Monday through Friday here on 93.5, 107.5 The Fan. If you happen to be in the area and are so kind as to listen to that, we would be most appreciative. But we've been talking about some of the names of yesteryear here that make Indianapolis what it is. Bob Harkey, one of those we talked about. Roger Rager we were just talking about. And now, Mike, let's move to Jerry Sneva because I think he has the last name to be able to maybe put himself in the forefront of representing a group of drivers, and that is... Guys that were just always willing to hop into a car if the opportunity presented itself. Oh, there's no doubt about it. Jerry Sneva, these are the kind of guys that um, I really wish um, the late Robin Miller was here to, to do his show because we could have probably done two or three hours with him talking about some of these guys and, and their willingness to jump in a car at the last minute and jump into cars that they hadn't barely even sat in, put them in the qualifying line, Take him to the take him to the line and put him in the show, and that's what Jerry Sneva would do. Uh, he, you know, there's an incredible story about the fact that Jerry Sneva got in the uh, Warner Hodgson car, the AMC car, got in the car and found out basically on his run that the throttle was sticking, and and he was basically shutting the throttle. You know, he he was the the throttle was sticking open, and and he was shutting it off in the you know in the turns and. It was just an amazing story um, of, of bravery that he qualified this car for the Indianapolis 500 with the throttle stuck basically on it. And that, that was just the kind of guy Jerry Sneva was. He was going to, you know, when he was asked about it, it was like, why would you take that kind of a risk, you know, with this kind of, to put it in the Indianapolis 500? That's all that matters is I want to be in the show. And, and he put it in the show. So that's what kind of guys these guys are. And it's funny because when you think about his brother, Tom Sneva, who, of course, broke the 200-mile-an-hour barrier in qualifying, got the 200 silver dollars as a result of doing that, and then won the race in 1983. You know, you think about the fact that it would seem that the Sneva name would be automatic in representing those whose face are on the Borg Warner. But to many, Robin Miller, Mike, for example, would be a prime example of this group. There are those that the Sneva name represents the resiliency we've been talking about over the course of tonight in terms of being willing at all times 
to be able to hop into a car and, as we call it, grabbing the helmet, carrying it around in the paddock in the garage area, looking for a ride. Here's Jerry Sneva on that exact approach. It's kind of tough being on the outside looking in once you've been in the show and had a taste of what it's all about huh? and really want to get back in there. Yeah, it really is. You hang around here the month of May without a ride, and it starts working on your head. You think, well, geez, am I really a race car driver or what's going on? And, and <laughs> you know, you got to just get in and prove it to yourself all over again. And it, it, it's a tough way to go, but... Uh, you know, it's nice that some people still have some faith in you. That again, Jerry Sneva with Kevin Calabro on WIBC. There are many like that, Mike, that over the years I think about. Um, guys that, you know, one of them that comes to mind and obviously maybe a little bit more of a marquee driver because of the fact that he had big-time rides at different periods. But, you know, Danny and Gaius is one of those that, you know, we obviously know about when Scott Brayton was, you know, tra- tragically fatally injured, but he was willing to just go ahead and get in a car. And it had been a while since he was able to do so. And starting in the back of the field and then managing to pile it up into a top 10. But that's that really is the spirit and the story of the Indianapolis 500. Absolutely. And, and going back to Jerry Sneva for a minute, that interview was from 1981. The prior year, Jerry Sneva started fifth in the Indianapolis 500 and his qual his ranking he ranked 6th as the 6th fastest driver but the next year he didn't have a ride and that's just how things happened in those days i mean think about that that the guy who was the 5th fastest qualifier the previous year didn't have a ride the next year um, and guys were just walking around with their helmets i mean guys like you know i think of guys like Larry Rice and again Billy Engelhart and some of those guys who you know they were just walking around looking for an opportunity and and just hoping for a chance and and jerry sneva was obviously one of those guys that uh you know uh, george schneider and and uh you know some of these guys who you know you could just give a car at the last minute to and and they'd be able to put the car in the show with basically no practice i think also back to the documentary uppity which is a great one about willie t ribs and one of the individuals that was interviewed about Willie T. Ribbs' run when he made history in 1991 and the battles they went through to get his car up to speed was simply the fact that heroes often are defined by who wins, but sometimes just putting yourself in position to, and I'm paraphrasing here, to have a chance to win is heroic. And for a lot of drivers that qualified up front and had the best cars, that wasn't the hard part. The hard part was getting in a car that perhaps nobody else trusted and trusting yourself to put it in the show. Roger Rager, Jerry Sneva, Bob Harkey are guys that did exactly that. Mike, a lot of fun. Let's do it again, all right? Sounds good to me. All right, thanks, everybody, for listening to Beyond the Bricks.